Well, hey, good morning, church. Thank you so much for joining us today online. If this is your first time at Sherwood Oaks uh, virtually, man, we just welcome you and are glad that you are, are here. My name's Sean. I'm one of the ministers here on staff. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, we all know what it's like to feel a little stuck right now, don't we? We know what it's like to feel stuck in, in our homes, but uh, none of us will know what it is like to be stuck the way that Jessica McClure Morales was. You may not recognize that name, but I bet many of you will remember her story. In 1987, Jessica was playing in her aunt's backyard in Midland, Texas, and she fell into a well. And she lodged herself in an eight-inch well, like uh, the, the bottom of it, the, 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 the well uh, casing that was 22 feet uh, beneath the surface. It took rescue workers over 56 hours to rescue her. They knew that baby Jessica was still alive because they could hear her singing Winnie the Pooh from deep within the well. And for two days, her story it not only captured the hearts of America, but it captured the hearts of the, the world. Uh, President Ronald Reagan at the time said that, that everyone, everyone in America became godmothers and godfathers of Jessica while this was going on. I remember coming home from school, asking my parents if there was an update and, and celebrating uh, as a family the night that she was finally rescued. And most of us, uh, Lord willing, most of us will never know what it is like to feel trapped in a well the way that baby Jessica was. But I guarantee that right now, many of us, we know what it's like to feel stuck. We know what it's like to feel stuck in a pit. Stuck in a pit because of something that you've done or because of something that has been done to you. You know what it's like to feel stuck in a pit of despair, a pit of hopelessness, a pit of depression. You, you know what it's like to be stuck in anxiety, in anger, in addiction. You know what it's like to be stuck in your head, replaying those hurtful things that people have said to you or about you over and over, replaying those things um, that, that have been done to you that, that caused this deep wound within you. You know what it's like to be stuck in your head, replaying those things that you've said, those things that you've done, that you would give anything right now to go back and, and undo. You know what it's like to feel stuck in life right now, wondering where to turn next. We're continuing our series this morning called If These Walls Could Talk. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, I encourage you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah 38. In our text today, the prophet Jeremiah finds himself knee deep at the bottom of a cistern. Um, and I think that there's some pretty good lessons that we can learn from his experience when we go through our own times in life, when we feel like we're just kind of stuck in, in a pit. And if you're not familiar with the prophet Jeremiah, there are hard callings that, that God gives people sometimes. And then there is the calling that he gave Jeremiah. Uh, God commissioned Jeremiah to speak on his behalf in a time when nobody really wanted to listen to what he had to say. Uh, their hearts and their ears were close to the word of the Lord. And because of that, Judah was about to find themselves in Babylonian captivity. If you were with us for our series through the life of Daniel, Daniel and Jeremiah are kind of contemporaries in, in some ways. 
And not only did people not listen to Jeremiah's pleas, they actively tried to stop him. In fact, several times we read that Jeremiah uh, escaped just you know, barely within an inch of his, his life for speaking the word of, of the Lord. And so we pick up uh, the, the, the story, his account in, in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 2. This is what the prophet says. He says, this is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. Now, this has been Jeremiah's message really um, since chapter 21. He's been telling people, listen, Babylonian captivity, it's, it's, it's no longer a question of if, but when. Like Babylonian captivity is inevitable. God has already made up his mind. It will go well for you and your family if you surrender to the Babylonians. And we don't, we don't typically like that word surrender, do we? It feels like giving up. It feels like giving in. And, and we don't like it. They didn't like it either. But I think what Jeremiah was really trying to get them to understand was that by surrendering to the Babylonians, what they were actually doing was surrendering to God's will. But he's talking to a people who have never really been interested in surrendering to God's will before. And so they weren't really interested now either. But what I'm amazed at is that, is that even while God is, is delivering this message of discipline through the prophet Jeremiah, he leads with grace. Jeremiah gives a message of truth that is wrapped in grace and yet still nobody wanted to hear it. Verse four, then the officials said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the, the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, the king could absolutely do something to oppose them. The truth is he didn't really want to. He and Jeremiah, they've had run-ins in the past and King Zedekiah wasn't really motivated to do anything for him. Plus, he was kind of a morally weak king who gave in to the whims of whoever happened to be in front of him in the moment. And so this crowd is saying, you know, we need to do something to stop him. We need to do something to stop him. And, and the king just washes his hands of it and says, okay, go and, and do whatever you want. I think the second thing that we kind of get from these two verses is, is that truth always sounds threatening to those who don't want to hear it, right? Truth always sounds threatening to those who don't want to hear it, whose hearts are closed, whose ears are closed. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Jeremiah, in this moment, he was doing the most gracious thing he could do. He was telling them the truth, which was a message of grace. And not only did they not want to hear it, but they said, hey, listen, stop talking because your message is discouraging us from living the way that we want to live. We don't want to hear from the Lord anymore. And so we read this in verse 6. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Malkijah, the king's son, 
who was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. I can't imagine what Jeremiah was thinking in this moment. He's at the bottom of a cistern, knee deep in muck. It's dark, it's damp. He probably felt like everyone had turned their back on him. I imagine that Jeremiah even had a few choice words for God, you know, looking up that well going, God, this is because of what you asked me to do. Like I was being faithful to you. I was, I was preaching your word. I was calling people back to you. And yet here I find myself knee deep in mud at the bottom of a well. <laughs> Here's the thing, whether you, whether you find yourself stuck in a well because of something that you have done or something that has been done to you, the truth is cistern walls don't speak encouraging words. Cistern walls don't speak encouraging words, do they? <laughs> if you're stuck in a well, it's probably not, not because everything in life turned out exactly the way that you had planned for it to be. No one finds themselves in a well, knee-deep in mud, surrounded by these cistern walls going, yep, this is exactly where I wanted to be in life. Made it. Boom. Life plan. Check. <laughs> and because of that, cistern walls don't speak encouraging words. They speak words of despair, desperation. They speak words of hopelessness, of separation. But even when we feel alone, the bottom of the well, feeling like things are caving in around us, closing in on us, even as we feel alone in our despair, in our depression, in our hopelessness, even when we feel alone and, and that we're the only ones that have ever done something like this, that we're the only ones who have ever experienced something like this, God reminds us that we are never alone. We're never alone. Jeremiah found this out in verse 7. The story continues, said, But Abed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Abed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abed-Melech, the Cushite, take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah, the prophet, out of the cistern before he dies. And so Abed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out cloths and there, from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Abed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes I love the detail and the care in which his friend um, ministers and meets Jeremiah in his moment of need. And so Jeremiah did so and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. 
And I can just imagine in that moment, Jeremiah coming up, seeing the light of day again when he thought that maybe his life was, was over, hugging the, the guys who had rescued him and giving the, the stink eye to the ones who had thrown him into the pit. <laughs> and so what does this text have to say to those of us who maybe feel like right now, today, we're kind of in, stuck in our own well? Actually, I think it has quite a bit to speak to us. You see, I, I think that there are, are, again, two kinds of people who find themselves in the bottom of a pit. Some people find themselves there because, like Jeremiah, they're, they're there because of something that's been done to them. Something that has been done to them. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. If you've been hurt by someone that you trusted, someone that you loved, the, the walls that, that you're stuck in, tell you that you are unlovable, that you're not good enough, that you'll never measure up. The, the walls are, are telling you to harden your heart, to, to grow cold, to close yourself off from others, to isolate in order to protect yourself from ever being hurt again. And, and so not only do you draw boundaries, and some boundaries are appropriate, but you actually push even the healthy people out of your life because you're scared of feeling that pain again because of what some one has done to you and you feel alone I think worst of all those cistern messages if you've been hurt by someone that you loved if you've been hurt by someone that you trusted those cistern walls are telling you that God's abandoned you too that there's no way that God could love someone like you after what's been done to you but the truth is is that you are not alone. God has not abandoned you. How others have treated you is no reflection on your value and your worth to God. What has been done to you will not and cannot affect God's love for you. The psalmist reminds us that he who saw your unformed body, he who knit you together in your mother's womb, he will never leave you. The one who knows you more intimately than you even know yourself will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will shine a light of love and grace in your darkest moment. And the cistern walls want you to further isolate, but God wants to tear down those walls and help you heal. And you may need a trusted friend or counselor to help you find the light of day again. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. All of us need friends like Abed-Melech who will stand by us when times get tough. Who will come to our defense when people speak poorly of us. Friends who come alongside of us to encourage us. Who speak words of comfort and hope. Friends who give us a shoulder to cry on in our time of need. God often uses friends like this to free us from the pit that we are stuck in. And so this morning, who has been that person for you? Maybe you, right now you feel like you are stuck because of a divorce that you are going through. You're stuck because you just lost your job or finances are getting really tight. You feel stuck because of a sickness that a child has or maybe even that you have and you are starting to feel alone. You are starting to feel isolated and those walls are starting to crush your soul. Man, who, who is walking with you? 
Who is reminding you that you are not alone? Who is pointing you to the hope of Jesus? The second question is who in your life needs a friend like that right now? Who is going through a divorce? Who is going through a sickness? Whose child is ill? Who is going through a difficulty time with their job? Who needs you to be a friend to come alongside of them? Man, give them a call today and let them know that they're not alone. Second kind of person who finds themselves stuck in as well is is the person who is there because of something they've done. They're there because of something that they've done. And you might be caught in a pattern of addiction. You may have had a lapse in judgment and now you've been living with a sense of guilt that is pulling you down. Maybe you have a porn habit that you just can't break or you've blown through your savings because of impulsive decisions. You've hurt someone with your actions and you're finding it hard to ask for their forgiveness. You just can't muster up the strength to do it. And now the cistern walls that are surrounding you are speaking words of condemnation and shame. They're telling you that you are all alone that no one would understand what it's like to be where you are or to have done what you have done. And, and, and if anyone found out, the cistern walls want you to believe that if anyone found out that secret that you were hiding, there is no way that they would still love someone like you. Of course, all of these are lies from Satan who want us to live in guilt. He wants us to live in fear. He wants us to believe that there is no way that God could love Someone like me. Someone like you. But here's what the Bible says. Scripture teaches us that your failure does not have the final word. Grace does. Failure. Like, man, think about that. Your failure doesn't have the final word. Grace does. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning the well of God's grace will always be deeper than the darkness of your sin. Always. You will never pull up the bucket of God's grace and find it empty. Because Jesus went into the pit for you. He paid the price for your sin so that you don't have to. And now the bucket of God's grace is overflowing upon you. Paul goes on and he reminds us that where sin increases, grace increases evermore. It will not run out. And look at me, listen to me. You are not the exception. You are not the exception. You may think that you are. You may think there is no way that God could love someone like you. But he does. Your failure does not have the final word. God's grace does. But you can't do it alone. And you need a friend like Abed-Melech too to come alongside and help. Someone that you can be open and honest with who will not judge you but will lovingly hold you accountable because, and this is, a, this is an important thing, if you find yourself in a well because of something that you've done, you, you need to know this. You cannot, like it is impossible, you cannot hide and heal. You cannot hide and heal. You can hide from your sin and you can hide from your shame or you can heal. But you can't do both. 
And so if you feel stuck today because of something that you've done, I'm telling you the most freeing thing that you can do is the thing that maybe feels the, the, <laughs> like the thing that you most don't want to do. You need to confess it. You need to find someone who loves you, that you trust, and let them in on that secret that you've been carrying. It's the only way to experience grace. It's the only way to experience freedom. Maybe you need to make a call today and ask for someone's forgiveness that you've heard. And it may be the hardest call that you've ever made, but you will find freedom on the other side of it. Maybe for you, today is the day that you take your first step towards recovery or your next first step to recovery. And right now the well is deep and and daylight feels like it is miles away. You may think that there is no way that you can be free, but I will say it again, your failure doesn't have the final word. Grace does. I have a friend named Tyler who at a very early age found himself stuck in the pit of addiction before God rescued him. I got to sit down with him this week. Uh, And uh, so let's check out Tyler's story. Well, hey, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. So you found yourself at a pretty young age stuck in the pit of addiction. Um, Tell us just a little bit about that. I guess the clearest example is I had drank myself out of college, um, began isolating myself to uh, all well-intentioned people around me. So I began to move in a circle of people who were doing what I was doing, and the world got smaller and smaller. I was I was essentially just chasing something constantly to make me feel better, something outside of myself, something out there, whatever it was, you know. Yeah. So when did you find your yourself? Like when when did you feel the most stuck in in your situation? I think the greatest point of isolation would have been a moment where I was in uh, the haze of alcohol with my last roommate having a argument over something trivial and him just kind of looking at me and saying, man, I believe you've lost your last friend. Wow. And even in the alcoholic haze, me just looking around and my whole life kind of coming into focus and realizing that he was, he was telling the truth. Even through all of that, I could, I could see my life, at 10,000 feet, and I had pushed everyone away. Yeah. I was by myself. And so you really feel those walls start to, to close yeah. down. Yeah. 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 You know, cistern walls um, don't speak messages of encouragement. <laughs> they speak messages of condemnation. <clears throat> yeah. And so what were some of the things that you believed about yourself? I didn't believe I was good enough to be a friend among friends. Um, I had a friend who had a broken uh, tattooed across his chest, and I just identified with that. I just felt broken. I just didn't feel good enough to be a part of a community. And and if I did, I had to overcompensate in some way just to feel, I had to be better than you just to feel normal. And uh, it was just this perfectionistic thinking that isolated me into a place of really, I was just bewildered. You know, day after day, I would look back and just be frustrated and demoralized at the ways I was, my life was turning out. 
So when did things start to change for you? Um, who, who did God use to pull you out of the pit? I mean, the beginning of it was my enablers started setting boundaries with me. Uh, family members just started saying, we're not comfortable doing that for you anymore. Mm. Friends started distancing themselves. And, and some of them even learned to do it the right way, to detach and still be loving and supporting to me. And then I got arrested for underage drinking and was really probably held accountable for the first time in a while by external sources. Not like I was forced into this place where um, what I had needed for a while internally was accountability and it was provided for me <laughs> by outside sources. I didn't see the light. I felt the heat, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, God essentially used like the, the police <laughs> to pull you yeah. out in, in a way. Yeah. yeah, they made the pain of drinking greater than the pain of not drinking. The shift that happens was the accountability. And then I got this information on like how it really worked in my life. And then, and then I was inundated with like a fellowship of people who were in similar positions or had walked the road, you know, many years in front of me. And, so really it was, it was God using the people who had been where you were. Absolutely. Growing up as a Catholic, I did not realize I could have a personal relationship with God. And a friend in the program uh, just plainly said to me, you know, Tyler, you can have this personal relationship. You can treat God as if he is in the room with you. Prayer, meditation, like tap into this source, this infinite source that I had kept at arm's length for or was numb to, or thought that somebody else had to be the vehicle for, was like the beginning. Uh, And today is like the seed of like long-term sobriety and emotional sobriety. And and what I love about recovery, whether it be, you know, secular recovery, recovery ministry, is Mm -hmm. this idea of the sponsor. It's someone who says, man, I have been rescued. Now I am a part of God's plan to go and rescue others. And so I know you've, you've sponsored several guys and helped them come out of the the pit of their own addiction too. That, that principle is applied to all areas of my life, whether it's business, whether it's school, whether it's family in my home, I need guidance, right? I need to open myself and avail myself to other people who can guide me along the path for whatever it is. I, I believe that our failures don't get to be the final word that, that grace does. And I know you'd be the first one to say that you're a living testimony of God's grace. Okay. What does is, what is your life look like now? I actually went through an apprenticeship and then started uh, investing in real estate and hmm. went back to school, actually fin- came back to school here at Kelly and finished up a business degree. I have a six-month-old and a four-month-old today, a beautiful wife who all keep me on my toes constantly and teach me so much. Truly, I can say that I have moments of real peace today. Mm-hmm. What I was looking for for years out there chasing all of that. 
Yeah, and I get to be a part of a community and engage and get back and, you know, just blessings on blessings. Tyler, thanks so much for sharing some time with us today, for sharing your story. Uh, and I love just what God has done in, in your life. And I, I believe that there are probably some people that are going to hear that today, your, your story, and, and think, man, if God could do it in his life, he can do it in mine. So I, I believe that you gave somebody courage today to take their first step towards recovery. So thanks for sharing. Thank you. Absolutely. If he can do it in my life, he can do it in your life. (laughs) Thanks, Sean. Thanks, man. It doesn't matter this morning if you find yourself stuck in a pit because of something that you've done or something that has been done to you. The, The truth is, is that it's no reflection and how God feels for you, his love that he has for you. If others have treated you poorly, God will treat you with kindness. Like we heard in Tyler's story, if you're stuck in a pit because of something that you've done, man, your failure doesn't have to be the final word. God's grace can be that. And all of us at one time or another, we find ourselves stuck in a pit with no way out. It will feel dark. It will feel lonely and hopeless. And Satan will make you feel like you're the only one who has ever been through what you're going through right now. But friends, the greatest news of all is that God sent our true friend, Jesus, to pull us out of the mud and the miry clay and set our feet upon the solid rock of his salvation for us. And he did not pull us out using rags and ropes, but using nails and wood as he bore the weight of our sin, our hurt, our brokenness on the cross. And because of that, we can rest assured that our value and our worth to God lies in his grace for us. And that his grace will always, always have the final word in your life. If you want to talk to somebody more about what it means to find that grace in your life, what it means to take that first courageous step towards recovery or to find freedom when you confess, I encourage you to go to our website, fill out the digital connect card. If you want to make a decision to start following Jesus and get baptized, we have a way to be able to do that. We want you to make that step, make that decision, even right now, as we're isolating just a little bit longer. Don't wait. Let today be the day that you say, I am done. I am ready to get out of this pit that I've been in. I'm ready for the grace of Jesus to find me and to heal me. Let us know how we can come alongside of you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the message of Jeremiah that gives us hope when we find ourselves stuck in our own pit. Thank you that you never leave us, you never abandoned us. Lord, thank you that when we needed rescue, you sent our true friend Jesus to do it for us when we could not do it on our own. And because of that, we can experience hope and new life through him. And I pray this in Jesus' name.